Hey, and welcome to a special bonus episode of MTG Rants. And if you like the ranting part of the episode, this one's for you. We're trying to knock out a lot of this overrated, underrated stuff that we've been doing in the... Uh, you can probably hear it in some of the show that we've been doing. We've been doing like a few of them here or there. But we've gotten a lot of, you know, suggestions in that channel on the Discord. And so we figured we would, you know, just try to... We're, we're essentially at the point where if we tried to only do these as a segment on the regular show, we would never get through all of them. We'd never catch yeah, up. We'd never yeah. catch up. We were already drowning. So we're going to take this special episode to just bang out a bunch of them. We're going to rant about a lot of stuff. It'll just sort of, you know, be very freeform, and we'll see what people came up with. But we got a lot of cool ones. I've been, you know, looking through them in the last 10 or 20 minutes just to get a sense for, you know, wh where people are and, and start thinking about them, get the old, the old brain box chugging. I'm going to be firing from the hip on a lot of these. I didn't really look forward too much, so hopefully it's it doesn't show. But let's go ahead and dive right in. The very first one, the Higgs boson. Um, so from Juicy J. Yeah, from Juicy J. So this is an elementary particle in the standard model of practical physics. Uh, I'm sorry, did I say practical? Yeah. I meant particle. Particle physics. Um, it's produced by the quantum. How do you pronounce this word? Hmm. Excitation. Yeah, sure. Of the Higgs field. Yeah, excitation of the Higgs field. Obviously, I'm reading this off Google. Yeah. Um, I've heard of this before. Obviously, I like. I don't know what it. I couldn't explain it to you. I knew it had something to do with like theoretical particle physics yeah. or whatever. But here's the only thing I'm going to say. I'm going to go with underrated because I have no fucking clue what it is. So the, you, uh, you might think that I have some better idea of what this is, Tannen, and I don't. I I took. I'm really glad to hear that. By yeah, the way, Ross, I took three <laughs> semesters of physics as an undergraduate. You know, which are like the three. I took a you know Newtonian mechanics which is like physics that you probably took in high school, but a little harder, uh, you know, uh, uh, electricity and magnetism, you know, ba basic laws of that. So now we're getting into like 19th century. It's James Clerk Maxwell who developed those laws in the 19th century. And then the other semester of physics I took was part quantum mechanics and part special relativity, which is like early 20th century. And this is, you know, later 20th century. Uh, this is like the post-Einstein kind of stuff. So I really don't know what it is. I remember years ago watching this interesting TED talk from a, an independent researcher who is trying to like use more high use uh, what's called Lie algebras, which is a concept in uh, in group theory in, in high level mathematics to uh, you know elucidate a general um, theory of particle physics, which is what this is sort of fitting into. But I don't know the, the details of it. What I do know is that this particular particle is well known among lay people because it's been reported on in science media as the quote unquote God particle for whatever reason. And most physicists hate that it's it's referred to that way because it's like a sensationalized way of viewing the 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 actual thing itself. So I'm going to say overrated, but I'm mainly talking about the portrayal of science in media, which is overly sensationalized and that I hate. Which makes sense because oh, yeah. like the only two ways that I've heard of it is the way that you just mentioned and on Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Like they have a, an episode where they, you know, they talk about this but kind of stuff like or they mention it here. Well beyond, you know, the Higgs boson, any sort of scientific thing, especially social sciences, like that shit always gets reported poorly on like Facebook articles and even in mainstream news. Like they just, you know, they'll find some way to spin it in a way that they know they'll get clicks. So it's really how the right. media has spins actual science. And, you know, most lay people like we're not going to sit down and read a paper about the Higgs boson or even try to read something that's written for lay people. Right. And it's just going to be difficult for us. 
And so we rely, I think, on breakdowns from mainstream media, and it's just so awful all the time. So I'm really just overrating the portrayal of science and mainstream media here and using this as a way to, uh, you know, jump into that. So, but and yeah, that's, that's, that's your answer, right? Yeah. It, it's how you perceive this yeah. when you when you hear about it. You perceive it that way. That makes sense. All right. I'll let you go first on the next one. Greek and Norse, Norse mythology. Submitted yeah. by gold. Uh, I'm going to say overrated for Greek because we all learn about Greek and Roman mythology all the time and just Greek and Roman history in general. And there is, you know, a whole big wide world out there. So both of those are just overrated all the time, even though I like them quite a bit. Norse mythology in particular is underrated because in the last few decades, it's been taken over by a bunch of shitty fucking white supremacists who like to, you know, play fucking dress up and drink out of ram's horns uh, while being asshole racist white supremacists all the time. So unfortunately, they've kind of ruined Norse mythology um, because it, it just has that association for me now. But again, like it's still very interesting. Uh, and that makes it underrated, but yeah, I'm actually going to say it's underrated too. And it's kind of, you know, goes back to the last one that we talked about with this. We talked about Thor quite a bit. You know, this is where the, the essence of like Thor comes from. You have the, you know, Asgard, Loki, like that kind of stuff. And here's the thing. I got to kind of agree with you here that I think, uh, Greek mythology is a little overrated in like media portrayal and general uh, populist, but because of like all the stuff that you hear and you see these movies and TV shows over and over and over again, right? Like Rome, this Rome, that, you know, blah, 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 blah. You hear all that. And we don't get great portrayals in North mythology. We're getting some better ones lately, you know, but <clears throat> I gotta say, I, I like it better. I like the whole like Valkyrie thing. Um, more like, I guess you could say like a more Viking type stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's less gods and like, you know, swords and armor and more like, Ships drinking, uh, hammers, <laughs> Almost axes. Reflective of the two cultures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like it's like more that, and like I know who I would rather party with. You know who I'd rather hang out with. So that's, that's my <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with the same answer. Studying any sort of mythology too, because it's like the stories that any culture develops are always reflections of those cultures. Like the way uh, you know ancient Egyptians viewed their gods was a lot different than the way the Sumerians viewed theirs in part because the agriculture in Mesopotamia was a lot more unstable. So their stories and their, their you know, mythology is built around gods that are a lot more spiteful, whereas the, the Nile is a lot more predictable, so their gods are a lot nicer. Uh, so those kind of things are, are cool to me, uh, tying it into the, the reality of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. All right, what do we got next? We got Chase putting in Vintage Cube. And I'm okay, I have a question real quick. Is Vintage Cube the one that's powered? Yes. Okay. Uh, can I go sure. first? I'm going to go with Overrated. Agreed. Uh, I like I like Cube a lot, and I do actually like this Cube. I think the games in this Cube are actually sweet and good. Excuse me. But any game that involves a piece of power utterly ruining the game kind of takes it away from me. Now, <clears throat> at first, it's cool and novel and sweet, but once you've been Black Lotus for like the fifth time or something, you're like, all right, I'm kind of I'm kind of I'm kind of over this. Turn to channeled. Like, yeah, I, just, I'm actually, I think channel might be the one that really angers me the most. <laughs> Cause they just like Kozaleg you on two or something. Yeah, yeah. You're just like, God, I like killed your elf. Like I thought I was going to be a good shape. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I actually much prefer legacy and modern cubes to vintage cube. Um, it, it just feels like you get all the same fun gameplay and novelty of playing old cards along with new ones and the, the cool synergies that you get to produce and just none of the nonsense that the, the power, um, produces and like 
I th- I do that. I would like Vintage Cube for two weeks a year, but it happens, I think, for more than that. Yeah, <clears throat> you still only come like on Christmas or something, right? Yeah, but de- definitely, definitely overrated. But Cube in general is still great. Next up, Leo the Modern and cover songs. I have a feeling we're both going to agree here. Underrated. Way underrated. Yeah. Love me a good cover song. I love just. I just like hearing songs be reinterpreted because then it like you know forces you to rethink them, you know. And uh, I mean, th- there are some tropes that are a little bit overdone, like the you know acoustic cover to like make a happy song sad happens a lot. But there there are still plenty of interesting covers that happen. And to me, a song that gets covered frequently and still is really good is a uh, suggests that the song is just awesome. I think there's a million different covers of the Springsteen song, uh, I'm on fire. And they're just all great because that song is probably the best Springsteen song ever. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I love cover songs quite a bit and I'm talking like wide spectrum, right? Like some of my favorites, like, uh, there's like a Metallica cover, uh, that I like from way back in the day love love Metallica covering, you know, some people all the way up to, um, like when, uh, when punk goes pop. And I've seen a recent one where either country goes punk or punk goes country or something. Like that. I can't remember that. But like I, one of my favorite things about cover songs is it takes uh, the artist or artists that, you know, that are doing the cover and usually takes them out of their comfort zone. Right. Like they do a different kind of genre or a completely different kind of song. Right. And it shows how talented they are. Right. You see them like hit notes or do things they don't normally do or do a sound they don't normally do. And they kill it like every time. And then I also particularly like when they do a spin of like their own kind of sound into the song or like, you know, they kind of make it their own if they can. Not to say that like, a you know, a perfect cover of something isn't great as well. Um, also, like live music covers are amazing. Like, you know, when you go see a concert of somebody and you're like, oh, they're going to perform like their greatest hits and some stuff. And then they mix in like, you know, it's just something fun for the artist to do. Yeah. I remember um, like seven, eight years ago, probably I went with a friend of mine who was a huge fish fan. And I'm not really a fish fan, but I thought it'd be fun to go to fish concerts with somebody who was really into it because like, you know, the concerts, there's so many fish heads that like follow the band that there's like a whole culture built up around their tours. And, you know, I'd have, you know, some idea of what was going on. And we went up and we saw three back-to-back concerts they did somewhere in upstate New York. Uh, and uh, they did, they do a lot of covers through their sets and that it was right after one of the Beastie Boys had died that they ended one of the nights with Sabotage. They did a cover That's awesome. of Good Times, Bad Times, the Zeppelin song. That was great. Yeah. Anytime I, I would like go out to the bar and they do like a cool cover. There's a, a really good be- local band here called um, uh, Empty Bottles that does like, you know, just covers of well-known songs from like the 70s and 80s, which is my jam, obviously. They used to be a house band at Martin's for a couple of years. I would see them most Tuesdays. So, yeah, this 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 subject made me... Uh miss some of the social gatherings that we yeah, can't have yeah. right now so and but still very underrated love a good cover song uh next subject lima cloud coming in with sideboard guides and this one has a lot of reactions of just money which is like <laughs> hilarious everybody knows about like the the three dollar joke you know hey you know subscribe to my three dollar patreon for sideboard yeah. here's the thing i think sideboard guides i'm gonna go with almost neutral maybe neutral to a tiny bit underrated because here's the thing, I do think they are slightly overrated in some ways, right? Like, people will just pick up a deck cold, look at the sideboard guides, and try to play it and wonder why they can't win with it or wonder why, whatever, blah, blah, blah. By the way, in, in a lot of instances, I'm people, Ross. I'm, I'm people. But <laughs> uh, I do say this. Um, 
I really enjoy getting a good sideboard guide from a player who's put in time for their deck. Generic sideboard guides, like for from someone who like either didn't put in the time or just kind of theory crafted it, not always the best. Maybe it's a good starting point for you, but I'm going to go with underrated overall here because I do think it teaches you some important stuff, right? Like it helps you understand sideboarding better, which was like, I think my like biggest weakness by far when I started playing Constructed Magic a few years ago, like competitively. Uh, I really struggled with sideboarding and like understanding that kind of stuff. So once I started seeing what other people were doing, I tried to like, you know, reconstruct, like, you know, deconstruct where they came from. You know, how did we get to here? Like, why are we taking this card out for this card? You know, like try to understand why and not just do it blindly. I mean, I was still going to listen to them because they obviously knew more than I did in the situation, but I tried to figure out why, right? And so... I mean, and and even to the sense you've you've played next to me when I played Legacy for the probably the most of my life, right? And with how much I've played, I knew what I was doing in all my matches on the player and draw. I still had a sidebar guide with me. I think you notice that old crappy piece of paper that I always had in there or whatever. And sometimes it wouldn't even have the right sideboard, <laughs> right? But I would know where the changes are and like what you know how to fix it. You'd be like, oh, I took out like four force of wills, but like this time I'm going to only take out three. You know, like kind of thing. I'm just gonna leave one in or something. You know, like just funny stuff like that. So I do think they're slightly underrated, but it depends on how you use them. They can definitely be overrated if you're not putting them to good enough use. Yeah, the whole discourse that occurred in the last maybe ten years or so around sideboard guides, ultimately, what it revealed was that it's very difficult for a lot of people to view magic from a different perspective than their own, and that's where a lot of the disconnect came. And a lot of the argument our argumentation. Um, and then it also revealed that um, it, it revealed a fundamental misunderstanding from a lot of people of what magic content is and what its purpose is. So as far as sideboard guides as a tool to help you get better, I think they are very useful for people who are just starting out and really just, you know, if you kind of throw those people to the wolves, I think they're going to lose so much that like they, they're going to, and they're going to see the task of, you know, getting to the point where they're competitive is to be too daunting. So giving them a little bit of a crutch is pretty helpful just to, you know, lower that the steepness of the learning curve. It becomes very, um, it becomes, or they become a significant liability once you start leveling up and you're in that sort of middle realm where you've got some of your t- tactics down, but you haven't really solidified a fundamental understanding of the game and your approach to it, that's when rel- relying on the crutch becomes a-, a liability and you need to start working on, you know, taking the little things that you've learned and synthesizing them into a cohesive, more general understanding of magic. And then once you get to a really high level Sideboarding guides can be really helpful in your testing process because you you don't waste time early on figuring out how to sideboard. Exactly. And you're able to, at that, once you've got the, some of the the real fundamentals of Magic down, you're able to look at a sideboard guide and just by the ins and outs have be able to figure out what the approach in the matchup is going to be. So they become much more useful later on, but as a, an, a tool early on in your testing process so that you're not wasting time with, with you know, a limited amount of time to test. Uh, so it depends on where your spot, where you are in your, your skill level to how helpful cyborgs or guides are going to be and how much you should rely on them uh, in order to get better. And as far as the magic content goes, 
I think that there's a disconnect and it still, I think, exists with some people because the how magic content started and what it has become are very different things. Magic content began as something that was created by the community, the competitive community for each other, you know, and that, that's what it existed. It was everybody sharing information at a time when there was very little information and, that, you know, everybody got got a lot out of it. Um, what it's become much more so as magic has, has grown bigger and it's become commodified on major websites and other platforms is it's become more of an one more of an entertainment product. So that's a little bit uh, uh, orthogonal to this conversation, but it's become much less targeted at high level competitive players. It's not about it. Uh, it's not targeted at them. It's made by them still, but it's targeted at lower level players to help, try to help them level up. And where a lot of the complaints against sideboard guides came from was from other high-level players that wanted more content that was geared towards them. But there just really isn't that much of a market for those kinds of things. If people wanted to do it on their on their own, you know, free time, that that would be great. And I think you would have some at least small audience for stuff like that. But for the most part, like when I'm writing articles, I'm not imagining that I'm writing them for the Tannen Graces of the world or you know other SCG level uh, writers. I'm writing for the person who plays Magic once a week at their FNM and wants to do wants to start consistently going three one and four and zero at their FNM, uh, or you know maybe occasionally three one and four and zero maybe if they're just starting out. So you know when when you re when you you know refocus the, the way you view Magic content in that lens, Cyborg Guides become a lot more underrated. Um, but as far as, you know, a tool with how to get better, you, you've got to really understand their role where they're a crutch early on, but a crutch can be really helpful. Then they, the crutch becomes, you know, something that's holding you back as you grow. And then once you really, you know, become quite proficient, then it, they're really just a time saving, uh, you know, contravance. So you, you got to understand what they do well and, and what they don't do well. Uh, and the last thing I will say is that. When I write out sideboard guides, you know, for the Discord or anything else like that, I I do try to usually include a blurb after the ins and outs that give, you know, the justification for why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I hope that that, like, giving an idea of what the big picture is in addition to the nuts and bolts really does help people because I know that kind of thing really helps me. I always, you know, have a much easier time adapting things that are unfamiliar if you give me at least a hint of what the big picture is. Hmm. All right. Uh, the next question is from Zeth Ford. This one kind of ties in a little, a little bit. Uh, sideboarding into a completely different deck color in sealed. I think this is severely underrated. Um, I think a lot of people when they play sealed, uh, build their sealed deck and they're done. Um, the way that I always do it is if, if I have time. Obviously, sometimes you don't have time before the first round. Is I build my sealed deck like the one that I'm going to play, you know, game one, the one that I think is good, and then I see that if there's any other builds or any other decks that I could build, right? Um, one of the things that I do here, I'll give you a little personal trick. Any cards that I think are going to be relevant for sideboarding, I always have that like set in the front of my excess cards. You know, I have all that kind of set aside ahead of time. Like, hey, if I run into this card, I'm going to want to make sure I board in this. Or let's say, you know, there's a couple busted mythics in the set. Like, remember when you used to play and like, I remember um, like Glorybringer was literally unbeatable in limited. And I had like an idea where I'm like, well, look, if they have this card, then like I either sideboard in this deck or I'll, I'll make sure that I sideboard these cards. Is it? Um, an underrated thing is um, understanding, especially this comes from a higher understanding of limited in general, where if you understand the format that you're playing in, right? Like let's say uh, the last core set for general, for, for instance, 
was very aggressive, like very aggressive overall. Like my favorite deck was red, white, just things like creatures, a few removal spells, and you just beat them down, right? The aggro decks were good. The two drops were all resilient and it was very good. There were control decks in the format that would go really long and stuff. So um, you could maybe have like a second deck that you would board into. Like, let's say your, your, your pool had a good aggressive deck, but then if you ran into like the one good control deck uh, pool that could beat you that had like life gain and removal, then you could like board into a, a mid range deck that might be able to beat them. Right. You know, a couple cards that replace themselves and then their shock, like shock was a premium removal spell in that set because two drops are so important, but then you could like sideboard into a deck where like shock doesn't really, you don't have a good target in your deck for shock. And now there are two shocks in their deck are really bad, you know, or something like that. And like, you know, they'd be playing another like cheap removal spell. That's not very good against your deck kind of thing. So, um, that is a very basic example, but that is an example of kind of what this person's death is getting at. And I think that it is a lost and underrated skill in magic, mostly because limited doesn't matter anymore, which is really sad. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, so I have very similar opinions to you on this, but I, what you're going to say that it's overrated. I think it's overrated. Um, you know, mainly because I, I think I disagree with you on what reality is. I think a lot of people who play sealed, like maybe not at the very lowest level, you know, people go into a pre-release or whatever, but people who are, you know, playing sealed at their local stores with any sort of regularity or people that were playing sealed PTQs when those were a thing. I think a lot of people at that level really wanted to find something like, you know, what their second deck could be or second, third color. And they wasted too much time and effort and mental not energy on it. I, they, not necessarily that they wasted too much time, but they overrated the value of it. And that they, I they agree would make with. Those, the, they would make those huge sideboarding changes too often. Mm-hmm. But where I think people misstep and uh, lose out on an advantage in sealed with sideboarding is the the little things. And the, the biggest thing for me among those little things was adjusting your creature your creatures sizing i'll say like mm-hmm. i got into the habit towards the end of you know basically writing down every card my opponents played i always write down the tricks 100%. yeah well i yeah. i start i write down everything and i yeah i get an idea of what their creature base looks like and i start to look through mine uh, also like any sort of damage based removal size based removal and i'll look at creatures of mine that match up poorly against their creatures in combat or their their removal spells specifically and i'll board some of them out even if they're like pretty good commons like cards that i would rate in a vacuum and it will bring in creatures who are sized that to match up well against the opponent even if those cards are viewed as like you know barely playable or even unplayable like I would not hesitate to bring in a Siege siege Mastodon, like 5-mana, 3-5 vanilla, if my opponent was a green deck with a bunch of 4-3s and 4-5s, right? right? Yeah, that's a really good point. Like That's the kind of thing that I think people miss out on in Sealed, and to the point where, like, they're often, like, maybe bringing in one card, or they're boarding into a completely new color. I think most of the time, you should be sideboarding, like, three or four cards in a Sealed matchup. I think your answer is probably slightly better than mine, the fact that, Let's put it this way. I think sideboarding into a completely different deck, slightly overrated. Sideboarding in general limited, very, massively yeah, underrated. Very misunderstood. Um, and and uh, th- that that's a, a mantra that's been repeated a lot. And it's been then misconstrued to mean you should be looking for new decks and new colors, making these huge yeah. changes, which are really cool when they work. And I'm not saying you shouldn't look for them because it's great when, when it works. And I've done it before. But it's rare that you have a pool that can do that especially a completely different deck like where, where you're not even overlapping a color like it's very rare to have a pool with that kind of depth uh and that kind of spread usually your your power is concentrated in, in a few colors yeah 
Um, yeah. and, and it's great when it happens. You should look for it. But you should, you know, be very judicious in doing so and, and not just do it for the sake of doing it. You know, you you really need a very strong understanding of the format and the, to, to be able to do that appropriately. But the kind of thing of just like boarding in creatures that match up better against your opponent's creatures and removal spells is very easy to do regardless of limited format and something you should be doing constantly. Very good example of this. Um, the last PTQ that I won, I think I, I mentioned this the last show or whatever, it was, it was for Valencia in Spain. And uh, I didn't sideboard much in with my sealed deck. My sealed deck during the the Swiss was like a nine out of ten, nine and a half out of ten, very close to a ten out of ten. Right? It was just so good. My draft deck was also very very good. I had a very good black white deck, and I remember uh, I think it was the semifinals, maybe it was the quarters. I don't remember. It was it was not the finals, but I remember one of my matchups. I played against like the mirror. You know what I mean? Also a black a black white deck, right? And I sideboarded in like seven cards, right? Which is a lot. Yeah. You know, like that is a lot. And I sideboarded in like an extra removal spell that killed something. It was like Smite the Monstrous or something. You know, one of those type cards. A card that kills something with power four or more, right? And all stuff. Because here's the thing. I realized in that matchup, my two drops did not matter. Like a 2-2 for two or a 3-1 for two. Like the, 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 those are the staples of limited formats. They did not matter because both of our decks had four and five drops in it. Had like two, fo- two fours, two fives, three fours, three fives. Right? You had Train Mastodon, like you were yeah. saying. We had a bunch you of. Knew and the I brought board more was of them. Clog in. and the game was going to go long. Yeah, and I brought more of those in, and I wanted to make sure that I could hold my removal for like their bombs and their flyers, right? Like the ways that I was going to lose the game, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I remember this very clearly that on turn. I don't know. And like the games are going to go long, right? Too. I knew the games are going to go long. And we're very clearly on turn seven or eight of the, of the, you know, of our match. You know, we each have like six or seven lands in play, maybe eight lands in play. We're, you know, we're just going back and forth. The, no one's really, you know, we're jockeying for position. My opponent draws their card for turn, taps two mana, and plays like a two, two for two. And in my mind, it was like, all right, they lose. Like I knew that I won the game right then and there, even though it took like 15 more turns because I was like, he still has, he still has two drops in his deck. Yeah. You know, he still has like his curve intact. When, it, when I realized, I was like, this, this, because see, it's, it's a lot like Constructed. Once you understand what their deck does and you know the cards that are in it, like, it becomes a Constructed match. Like, you're just trying to beat what they're doing. Yeah. You're trying to beat and, that and deck. And this is the similar idea to, like, boarding out, you know, Thoughtseize and Inquisition in the Jund Mirror. Because, you yeah. know, the game's going to go long. You're going to trade resources. In this case, it's a little bit different because the, the way the game is going along is a little bit different. Uh, but it's a similar idea. Like, you know the game is going to play out in a certain way. You know these three cards are very bad in those kinds of games, so take them out of your deck. And that, that's the kind of sideboarding that people should be doing more in Sealed. But, it, that you know, it requires you to have a really solid fundamental understanding of, you know, what your deck is doing and be able to deduce what your opponent's deck is doing. And, you know... That that doesn't mean you have to completely you know, completely reevaluate you know every single deck as an individual entity. There's a lot of different patterns that go on. You know, so want to use an aggro deck, want to use a control deck, want to use heavy removal versus creatures. You know, you try to bring in creatures that are hard for their removal spells to kill, or creatures yeah. that generate card advantage. Like, you know, if there's a three mana one one that draws a card when it enters the battlefield, you're gonna love that against the red black all removal deck. You're gonna hate it against the green trained Armadon deck. 
Yeah, your card doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the, you know the one ones is not very valuable. So you got to have have an understanding of, of when those kinds of effects are good. Like you know your tricks are bad against removal; they're good against bigger creatures. That's another like you know you got to have these common principles down. And once you do that, you know you're going to find yourself just you know winning a lot more post sideboard sealed games because your deck is just better set up for those matchups. Yeah, like I mentioned, uh, I think it was Core 2021, I think whatever the last core set was. I mentioned the Health Shock was just a very premium, like, slam dunk first pick. You know, I'm thinking back to the days of, uh, what was it, Scourge? You know, when we had Morph and Shock was an automatic first pick. And I started finding myself, you know, I said Red-White was my favorite draft deck, but I found myself gravitating towards Green a lot because you could make three threes and four fours and four fives. And I was just like, yeah, that just seemed great in the format. Like no one can beat a, no one can beat a four, four. Like I remember secretly my, my friend and I talked about it and it's a joke because it's, it's considered it's printed in like every set and core set, but Colossal Dreadmaw was like actually kind of a bomb in that format. And it's just a six, six trampler for six mana, but no one could like kill it or block and use a shock to kill it. Cause they just didn't have enough. They'd have to put like three creatures in front of it. And then you'd be like, all right, I'll cast one trick. And you just like three for one your opponent. So, uh, very good question there. I think we're gonna try to move on so we don't spend too much time on the question. Um, next one, uh, also from Zeth Four, mana bases being good in a standard format. We just came out of one of these Ross where we could play pretty much whatever we wanted into the deck. How do you feel? I will say very underrated, and I think it's pretty clear from history. If you look at the standard environments that surround Ravnica sets and Ravnica blocks, they've almost universally been good. Now, we do recently have a bad example of Guilds of Ravnica after, um, you know, um, the core set and then after Throne. But I think that's much more to do with the cards that were printed in those sets than the cards that were printed in Guilds of Ravnica and Ravnica Allegiance. If you look at the formats that existed right after the release of those Ravnica sets, it was actually quite good. It was that like Golgari uh, Explorer, like midrange deck. There was the Phoenix deck. There was Mono Blue, you know, Aggro. Uh, you know, the Gates deck was like tier two. There's a lot of, there's a lot of variety, you know, uh, in those uh, environments. And the format started going downhill because of the late, the later sets. And then the format surrounding Return to Ravnica and Original Ravnica were all really good. I know when people ask me the question, what is my favorite, uh, you know, standard environment of all time? I free, I consistently say Kamigawa Ravnica. Now there's a bit of nostalgia there, um, but I do think that standard format was quite good. Uh, just very diverse, fun gameplay, you know, all, all, all that jazz. So I think there there's um, there's something to be said for allowing, uh, for having the mana bases enable a lot of different options because that, I think, helps limit the ability of, of individual strategies to dominate over a long period of time because it gives other decks more ways to adapt to them. Whereas if you have really poor mana bases, then... You know, it's once you find a really dominant archetype, it's very difficult for the metagame to adapt. So, and you know, I guess to sum it up, I would say you know, strong mana bases correlates with adaptability, and adaptability is a really important aspect of a healthy standard environment. I hundred percent have to agree with you, um, just because the fact that like you know, my favorite formats, I think back on them. And they had the shock lands and the check lands in them most of the time. So, like, just your mana bases were good. It allowed you to play your spells and play your spells on time. So, got to agree. Um, what's next? Got Cathel with different forms of pasta or shapes of pasta for different dishes. Massively underrated. Yeah. Like, massively if underrated. If you think that all the forms of pasta are the same, you're wrong. 
or you just haven't been educated enough yeah. at the, <laughs> when it comes to pasta. But like you and I have mentioned this on the show before. I actually, there's not many pastas that I don't like. I'm not the biggest fan of angel hair, but yeah, here's the thing. I, I like it with a very certain dish, you know, like there's a very certain dish. So I'm like, angel hair is fine. I will take this. Right. Is that, is the dish scampi? Uh, yeah. Usually shrimp scampi or some forms of spaghetti. Cause I actually don't like, and I say forms of spaghetti, like different ones. I actually don't like huge, thick spaghetti noodles. That just like are slathered in sauce. It just like it. It just feels weird to me. I'm just getting a big bite of pasta. So like you know we, what I mean. We fundamentally agree here. But what is let Let's twist this question and say what is your most overrated and most underrated pasta shape? Uh, most overrated has got to be like the spaghetti. Just like the bland noodle. You know what I'm talking about? Like just that that my, long my cylindrical noodle. My most overrated is specifically spaghetti. Yeah, now, spaghetti. I will say I don't mind a fettuccine or a linguine, though they're not my favorite, but significantly better than spaghetti. I also don't mind bucatini, which is a little bit thicker of a, of a spaghetti, but I generally don't like the long noodles overall. And spaghetti is just easily the worst one because it has no redeeming qualities. It's, like if, if, I'm, if I want a spaghetti type noodle, like why wouldn't you just do a fettuccine? Like, yeah, spaghetti is just horrible. And I, I it gets a better like. balance with the sauce. It gets a better balance with like whatever you put on top of it. You know what I mean? Uh, I just ugh. yeah, yeah it's, just, it's not good. We we agree here. What is your most underrated form of pasta? Um, any of the ones that can be like stuffed, you know, like cannoli, tortellini, like that kind of. Stuff. I think they're underutilized. And the fact that like I like I, when you like, say uh, stuffed, like, you mean like the so when you do you mean like the the dumpling pastas? So things like ravioli yeah, yeah. and tortellini. Yeah, ra- yeah. I was gonna say I was gonna you know shy away from specifically ravioli because like that's the one okay. everybody knows of. But I, just I like, wasn't sure if you meant those are like manicotti or shells that are often stuffed. In, well, but. that too. Like I just I, I like anything where you can get really creative with it, right? Like you don't have to stuff it. Like you can have it like with a you know just a traditional sauce and like you know some kind of protein on the side or whatever you want to put with it, or you can get real creative. Like I have one in my. Uh, I have one in my freezer right now where it's like it's tortellini, but it's stuffed with like spinach and goat cheese. And I just put like a little bit of uh, like olive oil on it, you know, cook it up, put a little olive oil, cracked pepper. I'm good to go. You know, if I want to put a sauce on it, if I'm feeling frisky that night, I might put a sauce on it. I don't have to, you know, and then you can kind of these you can do different ways too. like you can bake them with a lot of cool stuff. You know, you, you, it, it gives you more um, possibilities. I should have said possibilities. It yes. gives you more like. Okay. possibilities of these kind of things what is yours so uh, i kind of have two answers to this the first one for just a, a a typical pasta shape that you can buy in like a boxed pasta form is campanelli okay which is the kind of the bell shape um yeah. it's you know there's a lot of just anything where there's a lot of either ridges or nooks and crannies for sauce to hide those are always going to be good so i like a good rigatoni i like campanelli i like cavatappi a lot um which is like a big corkscrew. I like fusilli. You know, it's funny. This almost sounds like a like the Pokemon of pasta. You know, like you're just trying to <laughs> get all the names and collect them all. Anyway, continue. But the, the the pasta that has the highest upside in is gnocchi. Really good gnocchi is uh, unbelievable. Oh, I have that on like a completely different yeah, spectrum. Yeah. Like I don't even think about it as pasta just because of like of all the ways that it happens. It's easy, like, it's it's so easy to fuck up. And it's difficult to get it right, but when it's well done and like they, you know, it's really pillowy and light on the inside, and then they sear yeah. it and get a little bit of crisp on the outside and toss it in whatever sauce, and it's it just like it's heavenly. I was probably introduced to Noki in, in probably the last like five to eight years of my life, and I'm really, really mad it took that long <laughs> for me to find Noki and find out how good it was because it's, I, I think. 
Noki, if I had to say like my favorites, like probably Noki, but I had to say it like beyond that, it's probably just like a good Pinay with something is like one of my favorites, just because like I feel like it's uh kind of blends all the other like you know like I really like the the shell type like you could possibly fill it type and then I do like some of the other ones as well and I feel that one's a good like middle ground between yeah, the between fine. the two yeah and so like that's what I'm saying Pinay is fine you're never gonna be I'm never gonna be disappointed with it it's always gonna have because like here's the thing there like the other thing I have a problem with spaghetti kind of heard me allude to it is like I don't feel like it accentuates the dish well like I don't feel like it, it holds the sauce well I don't feel like it accentuates whatever's with it well it's just there you know, and then like some of these other ones, I feel like they hold the sauce and flavors better, which I like. Because like, let's be real, the pasta—it's it, kind of like, like not like the actual chips and nachos or whatever it is. It's just a vessel to get whatever the other stuff is to your mouth. Like it's just an edible plate. You know, just small edible plate. Uh, the pasta is an important part of it. It has some yeah, flavor yeah, of course. To it it has you know it it the texture is really important. It's a very important. I I agree. It's. It's certainly flavor-wise play, is playing second to the sauce, mm-hmm. um, though. Really good, good pasta has a nice flavor to it. Um, I just had a huge dinner, and I want a fucking plate of pasta right now. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, I might have to make some pasta tomorrow. I think that's. I think that's one's okay, going to well, happen. Let's Our, move on before we start yeah. talking too much about pasta. Before we start salivating into the into, into the we've, mic. We've got Lemon Lyman saying Bigfoot. Um, Can I answer this one first? Sure. Because I'm gonna make it easy. Um, Bigfoot as the mythical creature, like blah blah blah, overrated. If it's real, underrated. That sounds reasonable. I just don't have strong opinions about the Bigfoot. Yeah, um, that's that's, that's kind of yeah. Uh, okay, uh, Joey saying pets. Now pets are rated incredibly highly, but I don't think it's possible to overrate them. I was gonna say that I don't care what rating you have pets. Pets can be like your yeah. pet can be your favorite thing in the world. At, at best, let's be they real. Can be properly rated. Yeah. Or I guess it, at yeah. worst. They could only be properly rated. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Just, like they can never be underrated. Like, like companionship is such an important part of yeah. life, of living. And pets yeah. are an important part of that. Yeah, like, um, I was gonna say, you know, you know, they, they introduced dogs into magic recently. And one of the dogs, I'm trying I'm gonna butcher this this um flavor text, but one of them is it's like the the pack leader or whatever, and it's like he only asked for like three things. It's like uh, a warm meal, uh, a place by the hearth, and all the love in your heart. Or whatever like that and like that's the flavor text and i remember i like broke down when i read that i was like that's just a dog summed up and like specifically dogs like because like obviously i have one and i didn't get to have one as a kid and i didn't get to like you know grow up with an with a, with a dog and I, like i really wanted to and i can't imagine my life without my dog like she's the first thing in the morning you know she's the last thing at night like i take care of her like a kid you know what I mean? Like, I look forward to being with her all the time. You know, sometimes it's a small nuisance. Anyone with kids understands. Yeah. You know, you know, some, like, obviously, no like, you know, I, perfect. Yeah. But she's perfect. You know, like, I just tweet random photos of her yeah. at times just because, like, I try not to overdo it, but, like, the amount of joy that my dog brings into my life, I want to share some of that with other people. Like, I don't want to be selfish with it, you know, no, because uh, I love my animal. One of my favorite things about going home you know whenever i visit my parents is i know that the moment i walk through the door that i'm gonna hear jelly beans feet tapping along the tile yep. through the kitchen as she runs and jumps on me and i've got to figure out like okay where can i set down my bags so that she's least likely to deal do any permanent damage <laughs> <laughs> and it's a problem i've got to solve quickly did you by any chance see the like four or five twitter uh, tweet string that i put together the other day the story of giving my dog a treat I did. I did see that. 
All right, so for anyone who misses it, miss it at home, I'll do it just real quick. There's, you should go back and check it. It has pictures with it, which the photos really make the story. But I, uh, anytime my dog goes out to use the restroom and immediately comes back, like listens to me, uh, it's it's a good way to train her in case I'm like working or doing something and she needs to use the restroom, but I don't have time to like run around the yard with her. Is she'll go out, she'll use the restroom, and she'll come right back. You know, I'll just let her out the door. So anytime she does it, I give her a treat. Like I give her like a little, you know, we have these little like or you know, very good for her treats. And so one of these, one of the days, uh, I was like working or whatever. She had to go to the, she came in is like, Hey, like I need to go to the bathroom. And so like, I went out and brought her out and usually I either hand the treat to her or I'll just like kind of drop it on the carpet, like right there. And she'll just, you know, grab it real fast or whatever. And when I dropped it, it hit the tile on the tile floor of my bathroom, of my bathroom, of my kitchen and went underneath my fridge. And I didn't realize this till I started walking away and I hear her cry. Like I hear her do her little, like, you know, Oh no, like something's up, you know, like help me cry. And I look back. And you could see one of the photos. My dog is just, you know, in the downward dog pose looking under the fridge. So the next 20 minutes are me trying to figure out how to get this damn treat from under the fridge. Because, A, I tried to give her another treat, which I did. She gladly ate. And then I walked away. She made the noise again because that treat is still there. It's still visible to her. And she can still smell it. <laughs> so I was like, well, that, that was mistake number one. And then I tried to figure out how to get the treat to her without moving the entire fridge, which is, you know, an ordeal in and of itself. So I spent the next five minutes like going through random things in the kitchen trying to get the treat but it's too far back and this entire time i am face down on the tile like the whole like right side of my face is on the tile and my phone flashlight is on so i can see what i'm doing i'm trying to get all stuff and also benny is very enthusiastic and wants to help so she's right in my face the whole time right like like tail wagging trying to help help out or make sure that you don't secure the treat for yourself or that i don't fuck it up right (laughs) you know like that kind of thing so um, and then it, and then it, it dawned on me. I was like, I think we have one old school hanger in the house still randomly. So I went through some of my old stuff that I probably haven't you worn mean like in a years. A wire hanger. Yeah. What, so I what found kind of a wire hanger. Have how many? I said what kind? Like wood. Oh, we just have like the solid ones, like either wooden or plastic. Wooden hangers. I'm yeah, like, like wooden or half. like the solid, like whatever they're made out of plastic or whatever. They're not wire anymore, you know. And um, anyway. Uh, so like I went and got one and then like, you know, like smush it together to elongate it and could get the treat eventually got it out and then had to pretend to give it to her because it was, you know, disgusting because it's, you know, underneath my fridge, I had to like go grab the bag, you know, kind of distract it for a second and then hand her a different treat and then toss that one. So she wouldn't see it get tossed and then wonder where that treat is kind of thing. Um, obviously that story is ridiculous. You should go look at it on my Twitter. It's got photos with it. It's adorable because she makes everything better. Yeah, the story is better with pictures. (laughs) <laughs> all right what's the next one okay the next one this is gonna be a long one. Oh god okay i'll just let you answer then this is from gold and they put universal basic income i will preface this so that for those who don't know what ubi is it is the idea that every single person within you know whatever segment of the society is under your purview usually a single country um will be provided some basic stipend that generally covers like all of their living expenses. There, there's different degrees to which it can go, right? And uh, and that way, uh, you know, nobody, you know, has to be homeless, and you know, they all like at least provided for in, the, in that way to a, a basic level. Um, and I'm I'm guessing that a lot of people are expecting me to express support here, but the reality is UBI is massively overrated. And the problem here is that it doesn't address the root cause of the problem it's supposed to be solving. 
obviously we have a, both a world and a country where millions or billions of people are, um, you know, struggling to survive. And we have this small segment of people at the top that are living in unfathomable luxury. And that's a problem. You know, we don't disagree there. But the problem that the, the root cause of the problem is that we have a that small segment at the top is allowed to exploit the labor of the people at the bottom. And UBI does nothing to uh, address th that exploitation or stop it. So what you have is essentially a Band-Aid for the system that is the problem, and you're doing nothing to address the system itself, so you're not going to fix anything. Now, there's a specific issue with applying UBI within the confines of the United States, because we live in a world where not only is that exploitation occurring within individual countries, it's occurring on the level of countries. So what we have is a system where there are you know, countries throughout the world who get exploited and mass by wealthy countries, usually the U.S. And, and European capitalist powers. So what you have to understand is that even the standard of living that we're afforded within the United States now is built on the labor of people in other countries. Now, it's still divided so unevenly that we have millions of people in the United States who are struggling to survive. But to say that we should distribute the wealth that exists in the United States and is continuing to be generated for the United States more evenly ignores the problem of where that wealth is being generated. And if you need what, what's going to happen if you try to apply UBI here is it's going to necessarily require an increase in the level of exploitation of countries elsewhere in the world. So you're not really solving the problem. You're just shifting it. Right. You're just, you know, you're going to bring about greater economic ruin to countries in the global south in order to raise our living standards here. What you should be doing is looking to overcome the system that has created the problem in the first place. Couldn't have said it better. 100 percent agree. And uh, I would have been one of the people who would not have guessed this incorrectly. So, you know, yeah, you thought yeah, maybe I mean, people would be like, oh, obviously, this. Ross is 100 percent for this. I. This is one of the ones that I think I would have gotten right if yeah. I had answered it for you. And, you know, I, I mean, four or five years ago, I was all for UBI. I actually, I think I still get emails about it. I don't think I've unsubscribed with it from some email lists. So, by the way, I unsubscribed from like dozens of email lists recently. It's a good feeling. You should try it out. I, I was th I was there. But, you know, as I've gone deeper, I've, I've realized the, the um, you know, the inability for it to solve the, solve the actual problem. So. You know, I, I would like to live in a society where everyone is, you know, guaranteed a base level dignified standard of living. And I think we can make that happen. But you can't make that happen on a worldwide scale without ending the exploitative system that exists right now. And UBI does nothing to end that system. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The next one is from KFET. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know. KFET. Uh, Star Trek. I feel like this one and a few of the other ones we have coming up, we may lose or gain some some fans from these answers. For me, I am going to say, say that Star, Star Trek is slightly overrated, but the problem is, is like I haven't been exposed to enough of it. I'm a big Star Wars guy. I like that one a lot better than I'd like Star Trek. Um, I do want to get into Star Trek at some point in time because I've heard that some of the TV shows are some of the better shows ever made. The problem is... There's so damn much of it. 
you know, there's like this show, that show. I don't, I don't know, like where, where's the story, where's the continuum. I was not a big fan of Shatner, even though a lot of people did like him. Um, I liked Picard quite a bit. You know, I watched those movies uh, growing up. I didn't watch the TV show because I didn't so, like probably wasn't even aware the, of it Picard at the time. Is Star yeah. Trek: The Next Generation. And yeah, that's the thing. But like, you know, that was what like late '80s, early '90s. I think was his uh, his I TV show. I want to say Next Generation was '70s into the '80s because I think it was one of. Um, I think late '80s into the '90s was the was a different Star Trek series. That one was um, Wh- whichever, right? And I remember seeing his movies, and I was like, "Yeah, this guy makes a great, this guy makes a great captain." Like, I like this stuff, you know, blah blah blah. I'm gonna go with slightly overrated because um, I I feel like it hasn't transcended as much as Star Wars does, and maybe that's even a knock against Star Wars. But like anyone who sees it from an outside perspective and isn't just a Star War- a Star Trek fan and not a Star Wars fan. They know that Star Trek is like a notch below, right? And maybe that's a reason to call it possibly underrated, you know? And the thing is, I can't say that it's underrated until I'm exposed to more of it, watch more of the shows, et cetera, et cetera, like get more into it to be like, yeah, it's not rated properly. So I'm going to go slightly overrated from my personal standpoint. Uh, Yeah, again, I don't have strong feelings about Star Trek. I've never really watched it. Um, You know, I've probably seen an episode here or there of different Star Trek series in passing. I've never seen a Star Trek film. I do like Patrick Stewart a lot. I've watched a lot of YouTube videos of Patrick Stewart reading Shakespearean sonnets. That sounds amazing. Yeah, he he's literally done like all of them. And there's a you know there's a lot of Shakespearean sonnets. Yeah, you know the reboot that they did recently. I actually thoroughly enjoyed the first one with Chris Pine. I think is, is the, there's a million Chris whatever actors. I think it's Chris Pine. I thought. I thought that they did an amazing job. I thought the movie was great. And they did a really good job of restarting the like the story of just like of James T. Kirk without alienating the old fans. You know what I mean? Like they have a you'd have to see it to kind of get what I'm saying, but they kind of just like deter they kind of like veer off and tangent the the timeline. So that has still gone on and happened, but now there's like a different one where they're they're their younger selves. So it's like, you know, they didn't just redo everything. They kind of just they, it's the same story, just from a different angle. So I thought it was a good idea. Uh, same person asked this one, and I, I think this is where we're going to lose some people, Ross. I think we've already... I, I feel like we've already done this. on, a, on I, I, I feel like we answered... Yeah, we did answer. We'll do a short one real quick. We'll just say we'll say whether we think it's overrated or underrated. Uh, anime. I think yeah. it's overrated. Yeah, not, not, like I... I mean, this is another thing I'm, I'm not... You know, don't have super strong opinions about because I haven't watched a lot of it. But just that... The like typical anime animation style really is weird to me. Honestly, uh, there's a almost a, all of the animation in the last like twenty years I find really strange. Like it's it just doesn't appeal to me at all. Um, I like I don't know. Maybe I'm just so much of a Simpsons snob, uh, which is you know, and the, the, there I think their animation, despite the fact that the Simpsons have yellow skin and four fingers. Uh, honestly is more realistic um but it, it yeah it just never has never appealed to me in any way but you know whatever if you like it that's fine yeah i mean yeah i'm not gonna tell you you're wrong for liking it i'm just saying yeah yeah it ain't it, my so. thing it ain't my thing uh the next one colleges this is from uh, our lovely editor uh brent wagner yeah colleges universities so um there's a lot to unpack here one is I really don't like this discourse in the last 10 years that has emerged about colleges and universities being completely unnecessary 
And this whole push was like, yeah, we should be supporting trade schools or, um, you know, or supporting um, and and uh, what, what I'm sort of just like workforce preparation. This whole idea that the only purpose for uh, you know high level education is to prepare you to be a productive worker. So I, I don't like that. I think there's value to a liberal arts education. Though, obviously, historically, the idea of a liberal arts education is fraught with issues and, you know, when, I mean, uh, that, and that, that's a whole other thing to unpack. But it, 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 there's a value in just being, having a well-educated populace, you know, and this whole idea that you don't need to learn, you know, or act like, you know, actively should avoid spending time learning things that aren't directly applicable to what your occupation is going to be. I think it is ridiculous and especially where the, you know, I think there's a, even, even if you value that there, um, you know, your ability to, to compete in a marketplace or whatever, as a worker, I think there's value in having a broad spectrum education because a lot of problems that we're facing now need interdisciplinary approaches. That said, uh, colleges and universities are very overrated because of how bloated the expenses are at this point. Um, and I, I wouldn't encourage people to take on mountains of debt in order to attend. Um, I, you know, I think the, the community college path is super viable because a lot of what people don't really tell you is that a lot of education is what is, uh, what you put into it. Like you can go to a fancy school, but if you don't try, you're not going to learn and you can go to a community college. And if you try hard and, you know, forge relationships with your professors, you're going to learn a lot. Um, so as far as just like the value on the education, um, you know, that's more determined by you. So you don't need to spend top dollar for it. Generally, the value that comes from getting a degree from like an Ivy League school or really high level school is just being able to network with people. Uh, so it's just a way to keep the stratum of wealthy people who are already at the top at the top because they all go to the same colleges and they all join the same fraternities and sororities. And then they all know each other and are friends and they all give each other jobs and they all get to stay there. Um but I do really like that. I, I, there is just such a huge value, I think, for people to just be generally well-educated and knowledgeable on a, a wide array of subjects. So the problem is, is how colleges and universities now function within our capitalist society and the fact that education is commodified and, you know, they essentially exist for profit. The problem is not the education itself. You know, the problem is not you know, going to school for four years and reading a lot of, you know, literature or studying, you know, whatever you want, you want to study, uh, you know, underwater basket weaving. The, the problem is the fact that we've, you know, create this system that exists to keep wealthy people wealthy. And we've, you know, created a culture where you're kind of for, you're like not forced, but told to go to college and told that it's fine to take out this mountain of debt and saddle you with it. It's it's deemed like necessary. Like you know, there's this there's this there's this view of it where like, well, if you don't go, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times as a kid I was told if I don't go to college, then like I can't get a good I can't get a job. Yeah, and, like I can't get a good job. And you know, having a bachelor's degree was largely like a, a guarantor of having a, a pretty reasonable job in the fifties and sixties, which, which is not true today. That is yeah. also a time when it was mostly just wealthy people going to college. Right, college attendance was a lot lower. Uh, now it's become not a, not a guarantee of anything, though generally p people with a bachelor's degree and with higher degrees earn more over their lifetime pretty significantly than people without them. 
Now th those means might be, I haven't looked delve deep into those stats, but those like those might be mean statistics that are skewed by people at the very high end. Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but I do, I just think, you know, just in a general sense, there is a huge value to having an educated populace on, a, you know, different things. I think there's a lot of value with, you know, spending time just learning about things that you're passionate about. You know, you never know where it's going to lead. This idea that, you know, you you should graduate high school, turn 18, decide what you're going to do, spend four years or yeah. two years or however long it's going to take to, you know, learn that skill and then do it for 40 years and then die is a horrible way to organize a society. And uh, that there, uh, but the way coll colleges don't really function that way. They're not, you know, they function to support the system that they exist in. So in that sense, they're massively overrated um, because they really, and they, they, like, they don't really educate you that well. And, um, I've got to agree overall. Like it was a very with, long meandering rant that I hope, hope, I hope I did an okay job of conveying my I, point. There. I think you did a really good job of conveying all the ways that I think of it. And you did a better job than I would have myself. You know, like I think about it, you know, I have a bachelor's degree. I, I make decent money. My wife has a PhD in her field. It makes very good money, especially for a woman in her field, you know, which is, you know, another point that we don't need to go down the line. But um, yeah, I just think it's, it's, it's a plus, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing. It does help show uh, stuff on your resume that, that, people are you know the hiring people are, are looking for but hopefully we're kind of moving away from that a little bit to where you don't have to have it to be considered for a job you know it is a thing that is we're just moving to a point where jobs that pay at a reasonable standard of living are few and far between overall so like you know uh and you know so the problem is that like you know our parents generation or, or maybe their parents generation lived in a world where when you got a bachelor's degree you were pretty well set and that world just doesn't exist anymore, and that's what got passed down to to a lot of us. And then predatory lenders came around, and then the you know, you know, the, there's there's a whole host of, of things where like yeah, we can get down that line another time. That like, the institutions themselves are shit, but the idea of higher education is not shit, even if that higher education doesn't directly help your you know ability to make a, a decent living like yeah i, I hate the people that talk about how like, they never yeah. need to use algebra like it's not about you remembering the quadratic formula when you're 45 it's about you having the you know mental capacity to reason through a, pro a difficult problem it's, it's about skill building it's not you yeah, know exactly. you don't have to you don't have to remember you know the date of the magna carta but you know, having the ability to sort through historical data, figure out different biases and, you know, make reasonable judgments about a certain source of information is really valuable. You know, and that comes from studying history. So all of these things are, are you know, these, they come up with skill building uh, and building those skills is good. But the, the way in which it's organized in reality is horrible and exists to generate profit and generate class stratification. All right, let's move on to the next one. This is from Dylan the Wizard. It's Calvin and Hobbes comics. I'm going to go with underrated. Um, I know they're very well liked, but I, I'm not sure if I've ever read one. I was never a I big fan read many of, like, of comic them. strips. Yeah, I haven't read. There, there's book. The main reason the way that I've seen them is they they're there's collections of them in books, you know, in book form, and I've seen it that way. And the few times that I've been exposed to it, that I've actually like sat down and read some of them, I was like, this is actually really well done. You know, this is actually really good. And as, as someone who likes uh, Garfield as much as you do, as you do, I'm surprised you, you don't have a better opinion of something like this. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just not. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. There. All right. 
DLC says Dennis Rodman. So the thing with Dennis Rodman is that he became this really in vogue person to cite as historically underrated like 10 or 15 years ago as analytics were getting into basketball. Um, he has historically good rebounding percentages. I, I think that that he is the best rebounder of all time. Uh, you know, and he was a great defender. And those things are really valuable to have on a team. And he did them at, you know, elite levels for many years. So there's a reason that he was a you know key starter on a lot of different championship teams. You know, you, you probably remember him from his days with the Bulls, but he yep. was also on the two Pistons teams, the Bad Boy Pistons, that won back-to-back titles in the late 80s. So he has five, I believe, titles. He, he was on the Spurs for a little bit. He might have gotten like one late in his career with the Spurs too. I'm not sure. But he definitely has at least five because he was part of the, the second uh, three-peat for, for Chicago. And I agree, like he was underrated for a very long time, but it's he's one of those people that I think he's become such a trendy pick to talk about being underrated that now he's a little overrated. And I have this sneaking suspicion, and I, I haven't delved into it. I probably never will, but um, I have this sneaking suspicion that individual rebounding doesn't have a high correlation with team rebounding. And when it comes to rebounds, it really is a team thing. I mean, basketball is a team sport. So, you know, it's more important to have a positive impact on the team. Now, I would imagine Robin probably grades out like pretty well there, even if, if you try to separate them as, as best you can. But there's no doubting that he was, a you know, a very poor offensive player. It didn't really contribute much on that end. And that kind of caps how, how you know, how good you could be. Um, so honestly, at this point, I think slightly overrated, but still a very good player. Yeah, he does have five. It was just 89 and 90 Pistons, and then the second three-peat of the Bulls, 96, 97, 98, was where most of my memory of him happens. Yeah, when he like you know got married to Carmen Lecter in the wedding dress. And... Yeah, so maybe Dennis Rodman, the basketball player, slightly overrated. The the human being, who knows? The dude, the dude's <laughs> yeah. a, dude is a, he's out there. Um, so I, I figured like I was going to let you answer that because I was going to kind of go down the rabbit hole possibly for the next oh, yeah. one. This is the also for Babe Ruth from Gold, so I'll, I'll let the yes. baseball guy tackle this one. So this is one of the hardest arguments in all of baseball is how do you properly rate Babe Ruth who, you know, set a multitude of records. Some people still think he's should be considered the home run king because it was done a different, you know, different amount of games, et cetera, et cetera. Like the first time his record was broken is when they added games to the schedule, blah, blah, blah. Babe Ruth was a Titan. He was obviously better than everyone around him. And this is one of those things where like, you can make that add to his legacy or you could subtract from it, right? Like he was by far the best player of his generation, right? When he was at the height of his uh, height of his play. If you do that now with the, you know, the best player of the last like five years, which is Mike Trout undeniably. And you look at the gap between like the second best player to Trout, it's a lot smaller now than it was in Baber's time, right? Like the second best player, you know, when he was at the height of his, it's, it's nowhere near him, right? He was the player, right? So, do you hold that against him that the competition around him wasn't as good? You know, because it's obvious he knew something. He had some skill set. He was just good at, you know, he, he was he the first person to ever really figure out how to hit, you know, and just didn't tell anyone, you know, kind of thing. Did he just know something inherently that other people didn't? It's hard to understand because when you start thinking about greatness in contextually with generations, especially in, in games like baseball that have been around for 140 years that have drastically changed from time to time, 
because you know, a the the modern athlete is drastically different than the athlete in the you know early 1900s who used to have to have like a second job. Now all they try to do is be bigger, faster, and better. Baseball you players know? back in the day got told not to work out. Yeah, they got told not to work out, and they would get hammered the night before games. Like um, the the all time RBI leader. For, for one season is, is Hack Wilson. He got like 190, 191. 190, uh, it, it's actually debatable how many he had. Yeah, he played for the Cubs or whatever. It is widely known that he probably played all of his games at the least hungover, if not still possibly drunk. Like the guy was just an alcoholic pretty much, you know, just the guy's liver probably died 10 years before he did. Doc Ellis threw a no-hitter on acid. So yeah, exactly, that to right? me is like one of the greatest so, sporting accomplishments of all time. And so, and so like here's the thing. Baseball back then was drastically different. Like, yeah, maybe he was just, you know, a, a slightly above hitter compared to everybody else. But here's the thing. Pitching back then was really bad. But do you hold that against him? And that's the big question, right? Because, like, here, here's the thing. If, if you if you follow current baseball, the best pitcher in the game over the last 10 years has been Clayton Kershaw, right? Uh, decent enough fastball, one of the best curveballs you've ever seen, like, blah, blah, blah. If you put Clayton Kershaw into Babe Ruth's day and just let him have the repertoire that he has now pitches, he would have been burned at the stake for witchcraft. <laughs> they have never seen anything back then like he did. Like, I remember um, there's a guy from almost the same generation as Babe Ruth called Walter Johnson. He was nicknamed The Train because he threw harder than everyone else. And they said that, like, when his fastball sounded like a locomotive coming at you, you know, or whatever. They've done some extrapolations and they think that he threw about 85. In today's game, you would not even make the minor leagues throwing that hard. Like, people just don't throw that speed anymore. Like, like throwing 90 is not even a big deal anymore. Like throwing 100 is kind of, you know, like whatever. We had someone in the game throw 105 last year in a major league game to set the record. 105. You know, you do that to Babe Ruth back then. He's not even going to see the ball. How did they, how did they figure out that? Or they I don't this? know. I am not a baseball scientist. I'm sure there's, and like, I'm, I might be getting the number wrong, but they were thinking that's probably what it was. Cause they were thinking about like what the average speed was back then of people throwing and that he threw significantly harder kind of thing. Um, but it also could have been even a lower number. It could have been 80. Like, I'm not even sure it was, but I'm just saying it wasn't even 90 miles an hour. And he was supposed to be like the hardest thrower for a while. You know, he was like. You know, the Nolan Ryan of his time. Bob Feller was supposed to have thrown really hard. And he's a little after. He's the 30s, I think. Yeah. For Cleveland. Um, But so are are you ultimately going to say overrated or underrated here? I'm ultimately going to say underrated. Just because, like, it's kind of like what you're saying, Rogman. It came in vogue to be like, oh, well, Root's competition wasn't very good. And I don't think you can hold that against him. Right? He can only play what's in front of him. Like, right? He can only play against the people that were playing at the time. You know? And he was by far, by far, the best player of his generation. He's one of the most dominant athletes, like statistically, uh, like legacy-wise in the history of sport, right? Like when you think of people like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, yeah, you na- Tiger Woods, you name Babe Ruth in this pantheon of player. And so that's why at that point, I don't think you can ever really call him overrated, you know? And he falls under, like, he's not as underrated as Hank Aaron, who, like, just gets not talked about at all and is one of the best hitters, like, yeah, probably top, top five, five hitters of all time. Easy. My, my, yeah. Like, has an argument for top five, but certainly top ten. Yeah. And, like, people just don't talk about him, you know, but I've got to say overall underrated. So, uh, one, I completely agree with this uh, uh, idea of evaluating players against the other people in their era. I think that's the only way you can realistically do it. 
And so that's the way I do it. And I think it's ridiculous to even pose the argument of if I took, you know, Clayton Kershaw and put him in the 20s, the, like he would dominate. So so he's better. I think that's a completely ridiculous argument because you can you would have to also consider the the contrapositive. Say, what if I took Babe Ruth and had him work out and not <laughs> eat 17 hot dogs before every game? I was like, he ate a salad yeah, a couple yeah, times a week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, give him a fucking salad, have him work out and give him the, the ridiculous, you know, technology and knowledge and training regiment that players of today have. So like they drank a lot of beer back then because it was actually one of the safest things to drink. It was like one of the healthiest things to drink, you know? So there was like the, the there's just a, the, like that, that idea is ridiculous. I, I agree that like the level of competition is higher now and it only goes up, right? Uh, like it only ever goes up. Uh, so yeah, we're like, we can agree there. But if you're talking about best of all time, I think you're literally asking the question best relative to their era. And, you know, then when you do that, Babe Ruth, he grades out at an, just an absurd level. Yeah. Like Barry if Bonds you take today's... is close. And we know yeah. Barry Bonds was juicing out of his mind. Yeah. So, like, you know, I we don't know exactly how prevalent steroids were in baseball during that era. They were probably pretty prevalent, but they weren't 100% universal. You know, so he had some advantage over some, some amount of people and he still doesn't quite get to Ruth level. He gets to comparable, but he doesn't yeah. quite like Ruth is still like a nose ahead. And the thing that puts me puts him over the top is for the first like five years of his career, he was a, a great pitcher. Like he could have yeah, been a pitcher his entire career. And, people don't know that. And yeah. been fine. He actually has the record, I think, for like lowest ERA in a World Series for like somebody with a minimum inning count or whatever. Like, yeah, or, it's like him and Mariano Rivera. Yeah, yeah it, it like it. It's it, he was actually really good, and yeah, like the you know the standards are lower, but it's relative relative to the era. He could do both, you know, <laughs> get you somebody that could do both. It's exactly. Like the last one point I want to add is like I think in the modern era of baseball, I think the height of Barry Bonds is the closest we've come to someone yeah. like Babe Ruth, just putting up astronomical numbers that like other people can't actually produce. Yeah, you know that, that kind of thing. Closest. And if somebody did that and they did it clean, I would probably put them ahead of Babe Ruth because I think it's a little bit harder to do in the modern era than it is in that era. Yeah, there's so many things today too. Like you know they didn't have you know lefty specialists and bullpens. You know like they didn't even have bullpens really back then. You know the same guy would get out there and throw 240 pitches in a game. Yeah, the the, you know, in, kind of the increased sophistication. That has been added to the game over the, you know, 70, 80, 80 90 years since Ruth retired, almost 90. Uh, and like, I think that makes it harder to achieve those gaudy numbers. So, you know, if you get pretty close, like, you know, I probably, I would rate, you know, Mike Trout over players from the first 60 years of baseball with similar numbers relative to their era, because I think it is harder to do. But if, you know, nobody's has even come close to what Babe Ruth did other than roided out Barry Bonds. Yeah, exactly. And so um, for all those reasons, underrated as always. So uh, the guy's just in a, in a league of his own. All right. The next one is from the Cody Hope. It's just Splinter Twin. I'm going to go with overrated because um, I'm going to go for overrated for one reason. And then I'm going to go underrated for one reason. Overrated for the fact that there's been this discourse the last like year or two of like, unbanned splinter twin and there's all these like splinter twin apologists or like splinter twin like fans that are like it's fine uh you know you see the tweet multiple times a year unbanned splinter twin you cowards like at wizards and stuff for modern or whatever blah blah, blah. and i think that's where it leads to me to be that maybe it is actually underrated because this discourse exists because you don't actually want this 
I'm at the point where I'm not sure how good Splinter Tone would be in Modern. I think the I think since Modern Masters and the sets that have, that have followed it, the format as a whole is just so much more powerful than it was in the era before then that I'm willing to reconsider most cards that are on the ban list. I do think Splinter Twin is overrated. Um, like it's certainly overrated, like as a combo deck. You know, this this was a control deck that had a Splinter Twin win condition. And yeah, like I'm sure you could come up with a good Splinter Twin deck that incorporates you know things like Mystic Sanctuary and Force of Negation and a lot of these powerful new elements. But is devoting ten cards? You like decks back in the day were usually two Pastor Might, four Exarch, four Twin. You know, you could trim down to about eight, you know, one Pastor Might, three Twin. So, like, is devoting eight to ten cards to this combo better than playing more interaction and Uro? I'm, I'm not sold that it is. Nope, probably not. So, I think at this point it's probably overrated and could be unbanned. That said, I want Uro to get banned all the time. And then at that point yeah. we've got to reconsider how powerful is how powerful Splinter Twin is relative to the format. So, the comparison to Uro is only... Um, relevant when you're talking about this specific current metagame but the fact that i think uro is i'm just sick of uro so much as an aside i've made this joke on the cast before i i want to co- find every copy of uro strap it to a rocket and launch it directly into the sun yeah exactly i, I don't want that card to exist anymore uh, I, I don't like this mythology around splinter twin has built up to k- kind of ridiculous levels at this point i think this deck was it's almost a it's just a meme at this yeah, point it, honestly so that, that's that's the problem yeah maddie j with bolting the bird i'm gonna go first on this one again i'm gonna say for the first 20-ish years of magic probably underrated overall and for the last few years of magic probably overrated uh with the power level that cards are at nowadays keeping people off of something really powerful for one turn isn't necessarily as good as it used to be. And I'm not saying that that in general is overrated and it shouldn't still be good, but I think that in comparison to the effect that it had earlier in magic to where it has now is I think it's not as big because of the overall power creep of these like super pushed cards. I would actually think that effect would be reversed. I think when the, when the power level of a format is flatter, then I mean, I want I want them to have cards like Birds of Paradise in their deck. Then, if they have really really powerful cards, I want them to have cards that are actually bad. Well, those like cards the, aren't, like those deck cards building aren't doesn't bad. yeah deck building doesn't really contain that that much anymore. And like you know, it's it's a different thing now too. Like you know, I'm starting to reconsider my answer here because like when I think of like Bird, I think of like Birds of Paradise, right? Yeah. And like that one, honestly, yeah, maybe that one was slightly overrated. And then now you think about like Gilded Goose, and you're like, well, maybe killing that was underrated because that card was actually just busted. <laughs> uh. Well, yeah, I mean, there are other considerations with Goose, but when you're talking about this as a mantra, you're talking about stopping that turn one acceleration. And when I... When well, yeah, that overall, I think, is underrated, yeah. Well, so I, the way I would see it is in a format where the, the power curve of the format as a whole is relatively flat, then tempo is much less important because the card you're playing, you know, the three mana card you're playing on turn two isn't that much more impressive than the two mana card that your opponent is playing. And that's kind of where I was going to my first the answer, you know, of like tempo. more important relative to tempo, but as the, the format becomes more skewed across all of the cards and there's a higher delta of power level between the best cards and the worst cards in the environment, then the games degenerate into being a race to establish those really powerful cards and in those kinds of games, bolting the bird becomes more important. So I would okay. say it's probably more important overall, though 
I'm still going to say overrated just because I don't like hard and fast mantras. Like they can be, you know, again, this is kind of the same thing as a cyber guide. You know, early if you're just starting, having these kinds of, uh, you know, heuristics can be really beneficial. But if you really want to be at the highest levels in competitive magic, you've got to understand the reasoning behind the heuristics and be learn when to deviate from them. And I realized that like two or three years ago, I wrote an article that was entirely about bolting the bird. And I do think it most of the time it's very correct. But I want to stress the importance of of the difference between being good at magic and gr being great at magic is knowing when, like, if, say, bolting the bird is right ninety five percent of the time. Just as a as an example, you need to know what that five percent is. That's the difference between being good and being great. Because if you're relying on the crutch, you're wrong five percent of the time. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay, next up from our editor again, Brent, SCG events slash Magic Fest events. So these are obviously all very underrated. Any paper event at this point. Yeah. We just miss them all the time. I'm sure there were many paper events that we just skipped. Like We were like, ah, I don't really feel like it. And now oh, all yeah. we want is just any sort of paper event. So that's an easy underrated. Yeah, easy underrated. Uh, next one is from KFED again, Doctor Who. I'm going to go with um, overrated just because, again, I haven't super got into it. I've tried to watch it multiple times, and I, I just, Ross, I just can't do it. Like, I just, I cannot get through it. Yeah, I've never attempted to watch an episode of Doctor Who. Um, I'm, I think I would be weirded out trying to watch it across multiple Doctors. Uh, you know, for people who are really big fans, I think that's interesting for them because it kind of, like, keeps things fresh because each Doctor has their own spin on it, I guess. Um, but this has, yeah, never been something I've been interested in. Right, this one is from uh, from Joe Country Music. I'm gonna say overrated now in like the the 90s era, like kind of when I was growing up and going into high school. Underrated. Um, I am gonna go the exact reverse. I think 90s, in terms of country music, I think the 90s and like early 2000s is sort of the height of the Nashville pop country when it really started taking over and that's the worst part aspect of country music. And it's generally people's perception of country music. Um, whereas now we've got artists like Sturgill Simpson and Jason Isbell um, who are, are putting out really good stuff. Um, so, and they're starting to gain some mainstream recognition. Um, it's okay to be wrong, Ross, you know, not, not everyone's perfect, but here's the thing. It's going to be overall just massively underrated because there's this huge segment of um, people that just instinctively say all country music sucks and I hate it. And there's a lot yeah. of classism and actually racism that comes along with that because they're all just essentially looking down on the South and they're painting the South as being a region that is just populated by nothing but ignorant, poor white people. And that's just not what the South is. Um, so I think a lot of the denigration of country music as a whole comes from a classist uh, and ultimately racist denigration of the South in general. You didn't think I was going to go there with this one, did you? No, no, I'm, I'm actually not surprised. Uh, but as a, as a person that listens to a lot of, I get, it, it typically gets branded as like alt country music now because it's different than, you know, that pop country like uh, style that people are so familiar with there is a you know any genre of music is going to have very tepid uh and not tep vapid you know progenitors of it and you know there's plenty of bad country music but if you know where to look 
There's some really fucking good country music. Listen to um, what the elephant. It might just be called elephant, but there might be no the the song by Jason Isbell. It is really really good. All right. Um, next, we're gonna go. Uh, I think I'm gonna. Hmm. Oh, Do you want to answer this one on. from Zeth Four? There's what there's one more song that I'm gonna urge people to listen to. Okay, sure. Ed. Uh, so the Al, the Sturgill Simpson album, yeah, is is still called Turtles All the Way Down. Oh no! So the song is called that. It's the lead song off the album Meta Modern Sounds in Country Music, which is a great name for an album, by the way. Because Modern Sounds in Country Music was the Ray Charles album from the '60s. Um, but Turtles All the Way Down by Sturgill Simpson is an incredibly good song, and his he covers In Bloom, a Nirvana song. So we tie back into covers. That is an incredible cover. Listen to those songs and tell me all country music sucks. I think I'm going to skip this next one just because I think it'll take too long in the context of the show and stuff. It was a Zeth 4 again with just Magic the Gathering. And I think we could have an entire episode on something like that. So I'm going to skip to the next one so we can have a few easy, quick answers, hopefully. I, I want to I bring up one point about Magic the Gathering. Sure. I think an aspect of Magic that is universally underrated is the actual mana system. And there are so many other games that, like, quote-unquote, try to fix it. And I... I agree that the variance that comes with the mana system in Magic can be a, a negative, but it brings so many other things that are net positives. I think the the like the what it brings to deck building and how your spells and your lands interact and exactly you know what the right number is and how how to manipulate your mana base to maximize the uh, effectiveness of your deck is really interesting and deep question and it is what makes part of what makes Magic so difficult and complicated and fun. Uh, so that, that aspect of it, which is very often denigrated is actually, I think, central to the game's lasting success and a really, you know, key part of it being such a good game. All right, good point. All right. From Nikki Bagel, uh, karaoke. So, you know, my answer As a, do I, I mean, I karaoke all the time. Yeah. Very underrated. Okay. And, uh, I will say for people that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are just kind of like, you know, that they don't want to get up and make a fool of themselves. You got to keep a few things in mind. One, uh, nobody really cares if you sing well, they're all drunk. Two, there's only two rules that you need to follow to put on a good performance, and neither of them is singing well. The first one is know the song. Uh, so like you can't just get up and read it, read off the screen. You've got to be able to, you know, be in rhythm with the song and right, rise right. and fall with the song. Um, and two is just be loud. Most people, because they're scared about singing, their poor singing voices, like hold the mic way far away from them and you can barely hear. The The entire goal here is to facilitate other people singing along. If you get other people singing along, one, they're, they don't really hear you. And two, they're having fun. So uh, just be loud. Just hold the mic right next to your mouth and go for it. I'm going to go slightly overrated, but... Uh... As a social lubricant, probably underrated. So, and podcast uh, over. <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, this next one from Joe, Beyond Meat specifically. I'm going to go with underrated. I think, um, you know, we talk about this, like, stigmas that are attached to things, uh, you know, like country music or whatever. You know, people are like, oh, I could I could never eat a plant-based diet, right? I can never eat a vegetarian diet, et cetera, et cetera. I can could, I could never, you know, do this kind of thing. I, I like meat too much. And, like, I know you don't necessarily, like, love the 
uh, meat replacement stuff like faux meat, you know, things that look like meat, texturized like meat, whatever. But I think this is a good stepping stone to show people like it's not really, you know, dr- this different, right? Like you, it's not drastically different. And to be fair, to be fair, um, I, you know, I have both, right? I've done plant-based diet. I've done meat-based diet. I actually had a burger for dinner tonight. It's one of my favorite burgers in the entire world. It's that good. But I actually prefer, you know, Beyond Meat, uh, Impossible Burger, whatever you want to call it. I actually literally have Beyond Meat in in my fridge right now, in my freezer right now. I actually prefer it to a cow burger on average. I think it tastes better. I think it accentuates the other uh, the other flavors and stuff better. And honestly, when it's when it's a Beyond when it, when it's Beyond Meat, like what's the what's the correct term for like not meat meat? Like when you use a patty, like you just call it like a beyond, like you know what I mean. Like I actually, I would just call it a beyond burger. Yeah, I feel that whenever those are made for people or I make it for myself, I do a better job at seasoning and accentuating the burger. Like you know, putting more things on it than when it's just like a slab of meat. I'm gonna put a piece of cheese on it, put some like mayo and mustard on it, whatever, and call it a day. But like when I'm gonna grill up some beyond meat or whatever, I know that, and like I'm gonna like go make a mango salsa, right? Or I'm going to go go get like, you know, some kind of like habanero sauce and like make that along with like some guacamole or something and put it on there and make sure that I get a really good bun and toast it just correctly, right? And then I'm going to make like a sriracha mayo or something like that. You know what I mean? I'm not just going to like, you get know what I'm saying? I feel like you try harder with this kind of stuff. And that's not a bad thing when it comes to food. I, w- I want you to try as hard as possible when it comes to food because we are just scratching the surface of how like great we can make like food in in general. And especially the fact that I'm going to go one step further and not go down the rabbit hole with this, but like the, the, the meat industry in general is just horrible, obviously. So anything that can make us take a step back from that, I'm all for. Yeah. So in, in that sense, you know, uh, beyond burgers underrated as for the, the burger itself, they, I've yet to find people that really that have tried them and said like I didn't like it. Yeah, like exactly so I right. Think like it's pretty properly rated. Like the Beyond Burger is good. The Impossible it's Burger I good. Think is a little bit better, um, but they're very close, you know. Um, and I love that they exist because that was one of the things I missed going vegetarian was not necessarily the taste of beef, but that experience of biting into a ju- juicy burger, and they they both recreate the experience pretty well. It's also really nice to have that option, right? Like if, you know, when we all go out, like you and I specifically, I know that like, you know, multiple times and like trips with, you know, our teams or whatever for, for SEG events, I remember like we'd go to a burger place, but you and I would look ahead of time and like see that it had that option and we would always get, you know, whatever the vegetarian option is, you know, we'd get like the Beyond Burger. It was like, in that way, everyone sitting at the table had a burger at the burger place. Like, that's just cool. And you it's know? a huge improvement over some of the previous options. I- I've had oh. some veggie burgers that are very good. But I've had a lot that are awful. Thankfully, I didn't really have to run into that problem. You know, back when they were still trying to find themselves or whatever you want to say. I've had a lot of black bean burgers, and I love black beans. It is one of my staple proteins. I do, too. I'm not sure if I've ever had a good black bean burger. They're all mediocre at best. They're mediocre at best. I like black bean uh, quesadillas mixed with some other stuff. Like, you do it with, like, fajita fajita vegetables, pretty much. Uh, Yeah, I do that a lot. That's how you do it. Little sour cream, you know, uh, a little sriracha. But the, the, some good stuff. the Beyond Meat, I think, is pretty properly rated. Over, you know, if you were to include the, I'm sure, huge segment of our society that will reject 
any non-beef, you know, burger alternative just offhand, uh, you know, then like it's probably underrated. But among people that are, you know, open to it, I think it's been pretty properly rated and well regarded as it should be. Yeah. And the proper rating of it is underrated. So anyway, <laughs> uh, UpGamer uh, says, playing MTG, MTG decks that make you feel smart. I think this is a great one to bring forward because I think this is massively overrated. It's pulling the deck that makes you feel smart. This was a big problem that I had early in my career and probably stifled my development as a player quite a bit. It's like, I always played like the hard, complicated deck, you know, like, or the deck that you your margin for error was smaller, if you get what I'm saying, you know, when a lot of the times I probably should have just been playing A, the best deck, or B, just something aggressive that really punishes my opponent, because there used to be this, this belief that, oh, like, you know, you're not very good, or you're not as good as everybody else, so like, let's give you mono red, right? Like, you know, like, I'm not saying specifically mono red, but you know what I mean by that, when I say the mono red of the format, like the mindless, I'm using quotations here, the mindless aggro deck, right? When we have seen some of the best players in the game take that deck or take that mantle and play those decks at an obscene level and find ways to win games or just, you know win matchups that you shouldn't be winning or you're like oh they're they're definitely not favorites matchup and they make it look easy because they just play it correctly right yeah. magic is a very difficult game i was going to bring this up earlier when we were talking about one of the other um questions where um this this always stuck with me it's one of the biggest level up moments of my career i was like 5-0 in an SCG Open in Legacy once or whatever. And I played Adam Prozac, right? And uh, he's done this to someone on camera. And he, like, really got me with Storm. Like, really got me in one turn. You know, like, he, like, read me for having the right specific card. He either got me to play an extra spell fighting over something that didn't matter so he could Storm off perfectly. Or, like, I didn't daze his Lotus Petal in the right spot. Like, it's a, it's it's something that I probably wouldn't make the mistake of now. But back then, he got it right. And, um... I remember because this is the conversation. You've heard me mention this before. This is the conversation, and that's the match that actually got me to put Gitaxian Probe in my Delver decks. Like, this is where it started. Because, you know, he was playing Storm, and he had Gitaxian Probe in it. And back then, that wasn't necessarily, like, gospel yet. You know, like, not everyone was 100% doing that. And I remember I asked him, I was like, how do you like Gitaxian Probe in your deck? And he goes, look. He's like, I'm not the smartest man in the world. I, I know where my limitations are. But if I can have anything that makes the day easier on me, like, you know, playing this many rounds with this, with this kind of deck where I have to put in this much brain power, right? He's like, if I could have training wheels of any kind attached to this, why wouldn't I do it, right? And I thought of the same thing. I was like, yeah, like, it helps it helps my deck out a ton too, right? Like, there's all kinds of situations where it's just great, and then otherwise it just cycles or gets pitched to force of will, right? That, that whole idea of Gitaxian Probe being a crutch instead of being broken, I think was born out of arrogance, People are just like, yeah, you should just be able to figure out exactly what your opponent has anyway, and you don't need yeah, this. Yeah, no, you such can't an elitist, do that all the time. It's but, such an elitist way yeah, to approach the, the game. Who the hell do you think you are? Yeah, it's it's one of the most like that and like the stupid players play mono red, smart players play control. They're like the most elitist ways to look at magic, and I have been guilty of this in the past. And it's oh, something yeah, that I drastically try to change in my persona and, and the way I the way I think in magic a lot. And I think if you're listening to this at home and you've taken a good long look at yourself or thought about this when you're thinking about this, if you can change from that mindset, it will do wonders not only for your magic game, but just in life in general. And the biggest thing here is the idea of playing decks that like make you feel smart is obviously overrated because the idea of playing linear decks is underrated. And that all is also born out of, you know, a significant level of arrogance. I think because 
I, I honestly think that this is due in part to the something I brought up earlier, which was the fact that early magic content was made by the community for the community. I think that created an insular culture where the people at the top, you know, played into each other's arrogance. Uh, and they built this idea of playing magic as being, uh, as having the goal of finding what was, you know, objectively the best play or objectively the best deck or objectively the best build of the best deck, right? The entire idea that there is a 100% correct play on a given turn of magic or in a given situation, or a 100% correct 75 to register for a given weekend, I think is ridiculous. And I think it's, even if it did exist, it would be arrogant to like, you know, assume that you can do that week in and week out. And we need to be a lot more honest with ourselves and realize what our strengths and weaknesses are and while we should, you know, work to ameliorate our weaknesses as best we can, we still should be playing to our strengths. We're all going to have strengths and weaknesses. You know, you can't avoid that. That's just the fact of, of life. And, you know, this idealized magic player that only exists in theory, who is perfectly good in every situation and playing every style of deck and every style of game, you know it's just irrelevant to try to evaluate things based on what that person would do. You should be evaluating things based on what you were doing and you should have a better understanding of how a person's strengths and weaknesses might affect the way they should build and play a certain deck. Well, and the last thing, last corollary here is that the, the decks that are supposedly mindless or linear, they're not less skill intensive than other decks. They just test different skills. You know, and if those are the skills that you have, then play those decks and play them well and win because of it. Yeah. All right. The next one, Dylan the Wizard uh, asks for three things: the Alchemist, Harry Potter, and Lord of the Rings. I'm gonna go with. I have no idea. I literally have nothing about the Alchemist, Harry Potter. Uh, overall, uh, the books are underrated, and then the movies are probably properly rated. I'm not gonna go into anything further than that. I think you know where I'm going with that. And then uh, third, Lord of the Rings underrated. Good. Uh, also, no idea for the first one. Uh, Harry Potter overrated read a wizard of earth by Ursula Le Guin. And, you know, you, you don't need Harry Potter anymore. And, um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I think is underrated at this point too. Yeah. It's like people don't know that it literally started everything. <laughs> um, there's another question where we're going to go more into depth in the Lord of the Rings either. I don't think we're going to make it on this show, but there's another one further down in overrated underrated. So we'll get more into that. Uh, Rakam, Rakamar, uh, fidget spinners, massively overrated. Uh, there, there was a million different things before this of how to like, you know, do something with your hands so you don't fidget. Um, so overrated. Um, so yeah, like I don't think they're they're not some like groundbreaking thing, right? Yeah. Like I I've I've had a, you know what are essentially fidget spinners my entire life. Like I've always have like a deck of cards near me that I'll fill yeah, with. Yeah, it's called a pencil. Yeah, a pencil. <laughs> you could do it with a million different things. Yeah, but. The idea of, like, I think there was a lot of negative connotation that became associated with fidget spinners that led people towards really bad criticisms of them that exposed internalized ableism. Like, you know, having something yes. to fidget with is something a lot of people need and, and should have access to. And if they wanted to be a fidget spinner, like, who the fuck cares? Um, but let's not act like fidget spinners were some, like, revolutionary thing that, like, didn't exist in practice before. Yeah, I'm not sure if anybody really ever did that. Um, because I never really like, you know, looked into it, but this discourse had a lot of ableism attached to it. That was really bad. 
All right, I'm going to go through the next one. It's a five-parter. I'm going to go through it quickly with like my first reactions. I want you to do, try to do the same. All right, the color black in the context of Magic the Gathering. Underrated. Showcase oh, yeah. extended full art cards. I'm, you can, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my oh, yeah, five, then you do yours. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go underrated. Uh, showcase extended full art cards. Underrated. The card Oko, Thief of Crowns, Alexi. Fuck that card. Number four, Magic the Gathering accessories. Slightly underrated. Canada. Slightly overrated. All right, go. All five very overrated. Yeah, black okay. is only ever a support color. It's there for removal and thoughtsies, um, which was also true in the case of mono black devotion. Still, their threats were very <laughs> overrated. Um, that deck was overrated. I, yeah, I don't like full art it. cards very much. Um, I just I don't know. I like my cards to look like magic cards. The full art cards look weird to me. Um, Oko I think is overrated. In Legacy though, this is the one I'm not really confident in. I could go either way. Magic the Gathering accessories like it's like everybody has them all the time now. I don't like that if I sit down without a playmat. Which I, since I've been sponsored because we use like the sponsor playmats now, I haven't done in, in years. But before I was on BCW, I would go without without a playmat. Like I don't care. Same. And people would ask me like, "Oh, do you want to borrow a playmat?" Like the assumption being like the only reason that you're not using a playmat is because you you don't have access to one. Um, you know, really Which, weird. To, to be fair, is is kind of nice in their point. It, it's I nice in their part to, to offer. Be nice, but I don't. I'm not sure if it's overall nice. And Canada is massively overrated because people view it in contrast with the United States as though Canada were some bastion of freedom and tolerance, and it just absolutely isn't. Their history of treating indigenous people is absolutely heinous. Heinous, and yeah. They should be, you know, and like Justin Trudeau is not some progressive uh, leader that you know we, that is fixing everything. They're also a horrible human being. So fuck Canada. As well start singing the song, you know, blame Canada or whatever. All right, uh, historic. I'm gonna go with overrated. I I think I'm a little biased here because I really like Pioneer, but I, I also think historic is overrated. It's just weird to me to have this format where like I just have to literally like look in a fucking encyclopedia to figure out which cards are legal. I yeah, really can't look like a gatherer. Yeah. yeah. All right, uh, Dylan the Wizard again with uh, some some a few more uh, taking shots of alcohol. I'm gonna go with underrated. But only in the instance that I think people do this in the wrong way. Like, people do it to pretty much abuse alcohol nowadays. They're like, I want to get hammered fast. Let's do shots. And, like, I don't think we do it enough that, like, you know, there is some actual taste to it. And, honestly, it's just it's a good way to accentuate having a few beers in the night, but you want to get a good buzz. Everything done responsibly, of course. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan of taking shots. I'm going to say a little bit overrated, but I appreciate your take. Uh, and they said fireball. I don't know what Burt Reynolds so the, is. I'm assuming it's some Burt, kind of shot. I looked this up earlier. It's a specific shooter, and it's okay. spiced rum and this like buttered liqueur that supposedly has like a toffee flavor to it. You had me at the first part. Yeah, I know you you're lost a rum guy. Me. So this sounds yeah, like a good thing lost for you. Me. Fireball is very overrated. It's not good. I think I think fireball is overrated in every instance when I'm not around Todd Anderson. But this this Burt Reynolds idea sounds good to me. Meh. Uh, next one, Bradley, Approach of the Second Sun in Blue Eye Control. Massively overrated. 100% agree. Yeah. yeah. This is not a good magic card. Like, it requires so much of you to go right. And, that, like, there are some, there are some matchups where it is, it is, can be quite good, but just generally not a very good magic card. It's, it's just not a good magic card. All right. Zeth 4 with Rochester Draft. I'm going to go with another massively overrated most of the people who talk about Rochester drafts in like a good way are A, being very nostalgic, and B, they want that free win in Magic because it was so, so hard to beat 
it was like closer to chess than it was to magic in a lot of ways. Like if you didn't know what you were doing in a Rochester draft, you had almost zero chance. Like it was so skill intensive that it led to like some barrier for injury and some like some serious problems. There's a reason why we got rid of it in magic. There's a reason why we did away with this. I actually like vehemently did not like this format. I think Rochester draft can be pretty fun and is pretty fun in very small doses. Um, That's a good way. I think if you were to like, you know, have like a vacation with a group of magic playing friends where you all like got an Airbnb for a weekend. And this was like one of the things you did, like one day you just did a a Rochester draft and you did one amongst like cubing and, and other stuff. It would be fun. But the idea of Rochester draft as a competitive format I think yeah, it used to be the top eight of a sealed PTQ yeah. and you're like, you're not allowed to talk or anything. It's just, it's awful. And it just, it just takes forever. That's my biggest forever. thing with it. Like it's not that much more fun than a regular draft. And, but I do think it is more fun um, uh, because it is pretty interesting to, you know, see everything laid out, but it's not worth the huge amount of extra time logistics it takes. All right. Uh, best friend Tabitha says other people's hot takes. Probably underrated, but I'm going to say overrated. I'm going to say overrated. All right. Uh, KFET, again, with Chick-fil-A. Overrated. Very. Even if even if you ignore the politics behind yeah, all of the shitty shit, part of it, like, <laughs> them being a shit company, it, the chicken sandwich itself is not that good. Look, I, I've been very nice about some of the stuff beforehand that we've talked about. I'm not pulling punches here. Chick-fil-A is a shit company. But, yeah. Their uh, waffle fries are good. Yeah, their waffle fries are good, but, like, have you had Popeye's? Like, have you had yeah. a chicken sandwich or Popeye's? Popeyes it's is infinitely better. better Chick-fil-A, so. I will say this. Chick-fil-A's breakfast is pretty legit, but. No, I don't think I've ever had it. All right. What's the next one? Noam Chomsky. Very overrated. I'm going to agree with you. Look up Michael Parenti and then get back to me. <laughs> cool. Uh, let's go ahead and skip the next one because that one's going to be. That one's just an obvious one. Lower student-teacher yeah. ratios in the education system. Like, that's one of those things that is obviously very good and something we should do, but it costs lots of money and cuts into profits, so we don't do it. One of the main reasons I don't want to do this one is I'm not going to do it enough justice when someone is literally in the next room who could <laughs> school you on this. Yeah, like my I'm wife. Sure there's a lot of, of yeah. detail in there, but it really is just, like, such an obviously good thing to do and something we should strive to do, but the only reason we don't do it is because it costs money. My wife has a doctorate degree in this kind of stuff, and it can, can tell you why. It's just better. Um, the one for that is Europe. I'm going to go with uh, slightly overrated for... For, for visiting, but at the same time underrated. I don't know how to I don't know how to properly answer this because I've had really good trips there. I've had really bad ones. So for me, I'm not sure. Yeah, there were places in Europe like I I really liked Dublin. I really liked Prague. I did not like London. I liked Paris. See, I, I liked London, but it was it's weird. Also, my memory of it's probably jaded because I almost died there. But anyway, go ahead. Sure. Uh, in general, Europe overrated, but. All right, I, I do want to get the next couple ones in real quick. These are from my birthday, November 20th, because like we're going a little longer, and we're still not catching up to everything. But I definitely want to name this one from uh, Imra Hill. I, I, I keep asking him that's how to pronounce it. Whatever. Anyway, yeah, turkey meat, massively overrated. But I will say this, especially the white meat, dark meat, underrated. Everyone says turkey is overrated and bad. It's very clearly underrated at this point. Turkey is good. I get when I was eating meat, this was my preferred like deli meat. Uh, maybe Roast depends. Beef a close second, ham unplayable. Have you had ground turkey meat? Mm, I have had ground turkey. I actually like ground turkey because yeah, like turkey, uh, turkey, whenever meatballs like turkey. Yes. Yeah, turkey is just good. I'm convinced that 
nobody knows how to properly roast a fucking turkey. Brine oh, your that's, fucking that's turkey and then roast it. That's a fact. And I guarantee you it will be delicious. Like, just learn how to... Most food is good if you cook it really well. This idea that turkey is, like, really bad. Like, I... Turkey takes way too much flack. Turkey is really good. Yeah. Okay. I would, so, I would take turkey over chicken. You're insane. All right. Uh, Lemon Lyman asks, regional non-ballpark hot dog toppings. Something like sauerkraut, chili, coleslaw, etc. I'm going to say they're all massively overrated because hot dogs are dog shit. <laughs> Excuse the pun, but hot dogs are disgusting. Hot dogs anyway. are delicious. Sauerkraut is great. I do like, I will say this. There's something about having a chili dog. <laughs> it's actually not bad. Put some cheese on there. What is it in the Midwest that everybody, what is it, what's that place called? There's like a fast food place. Skyline? that's like Skyline. That's it. Skyline Chili. There you go. I've only seen it because of Magic Players. Like, I only know it because of Magic Players. But, yeah, there's, like, a, a whole f- movement for that. And, like, it's that and uh, they put on potatoes or something, right? Which is, like, it's a baked potato with chili or something. It's weird. You can do that. The, the big thing they do in that area, uh, specifically around Cincinnati, is they put chili over spaghetti. That's, and, like, yeah, that, again, just. And their chili usually has a, a, a good amount of cinnamon in it, too, which is, gives it a, a unique flavor. But it's the chili over spaghetti. It's called, a, like, a, a chili five-way. You can get it three-way, four-way, or five-way. And it's like, they mean different things. It's like, you start with the chili, there's onions, cheese, like maybe jalapenos or something. I can't remember exactly what all the toppings are up, but like... Yeah, all that sounds great. a specific though. three of them, four of them, or five of them uh, as, as you go up the rank. But it's hard to say, like, certain hot dog toppings are overrated. Some are underrated. Like, you know, ketchup sucks. Mustard is delicious. Um, relish sucks. Ketchup is pretty awful overall. Yeah, mustard is severely underrated. Yeah, yeah, mustard is great. Uh, I think I think mayo is actually slightly underrated because people just know basic like glue. Yeah, mayo because like that's what mayo is. It's just fucking food glue. But like everything else, when you like use it any other kind of way, is actually kind of great. Yeah, it just adds fat. And then Which is sauerkraut amazing. is massively underrated because it's fucking delicious. I don't like sour very much, but I do like kraut. So there you go. <laughs> And I'm trying to think of, a, like, regional hot dogs. I've never had a Chicago dog because I've never been to Chicago. They seem weird to me with, like, the tomato and the celery salt. I have had a Seattle dog. Yeah. It, looks like freaking, it. it looks like a freaking – it looks like a – it looks like a sandwich you would get at, like, a deli. Like, their hot dog looks like a deli sandwich. It just – it weirds me out. Yeah, they get like, weird over uh, – uh, Chicago food is just so weird. Like, you know, fucking deep dish pizza is not very good. They all, like, think it's great. Um and their their hot dogs look weird. Uh, have you ever had a Seattle dog? I wanted to talk about this one briefly. I don't like hot dogs. No, I've not. It, it has like <laughs> cream cheese on it. Yeah. And you I, don't like cream cheese on it? Bagels. So I, I, when I got told about this, I was very skeptical. But I eventually went and got one. But it was very late at night. And I may or may not have consumed copious amounts of alcohol. Obviously, you were definitely not sober. Yeah, yeah. I, I was not. Uh, but it was really good. So I'm, okay. I'm, my memory of Seattle Dogs okay, is Ross. very positive. Ross. Okay, okay, Ross. Um, but it, it, you can't beat just a like a New York City hot dog with mustard and onions and sauerkraut. Uh, I will say this: talking about it, I kind of want a hot dog, but like I'm not gonna ever go out of my way. <laughs> so, um, secret layer promos. This is from I have no idea how to pronounce his name, but it's Wessel Groot. I'm, which ones are like there's so many promos now i don't like any of them they're all overrated i'm not even sure which um, ones the secret layers are in general overrated every now and then there's, there's like a really cool one that i kind of yeah like. sometimes sometimes they're cool if you like specific ones that's fine but as a as a general idea they're just big fucking cash grabs mm-hmm. oh for sure 
Uh, I do want to point out the next part of the thing. It's not really a question, but it's something that we talked about on the show uh, that we talked about it, whether they were good or bad. It's taquitos. And you had thought they were just horrible, and I was like, they're great. I just want to know, let you know that Suck It, I won massively. That was not what the argument was, Tannen. And I yes, explicitly was. remember being very clear about this. We This was an overrated, underrated we were arguing about. And I said they were overrated, and you said they were underrated. And, my and entire then you said they're not even good. My entire point of saying that they were underrated it was because I thought they were very highly rated. And I don't think they're that good. They're fine. I don't hate them. But like Yeah, but the point was you said that they weren't even good. I'm like, they're good. You're like, no, they're not. I said they're not that good, and that's why they're <laughs> yeah. overrated. And this poll that you made just proves me right. Because eighty two percent of the people sure. in the poll okay. said taquitos okay. are good. So they're widely enjoyed, and I, I think they should be less enjoyed than that. So I believe that this actually vindicates me, and you're a big dum dum. <laughs> okay, sure. I, I will agree that I'm a big dumb dumb. How about that? And just for argument's sake, I'll I'll let you feel like you want them. <laughs> and uh, I do think that's a good spot to call it like call it a day for. Yeah, for this sounds one. great so, to me. <laughs> yeah, we uh <laughs> we got all the way up to November 21st. We're trying to catch up on these. That's why we did like kind of the extra episode here today, and we're kind of trying to make up for missing an episode here earlier in the month. Uh, so sorry about that, ladies and gents. But I think that's gonna do it for today's special episode of mtg rants uh make sure that you check out our twitter you know you know the whole closing thing i'm not going to go through the whole thing but make sure you check out our twitter yeah the, the website's episode. twitter we don't need to do that yeah exactly and uh i'll let brent get ahead of ahead and working on this thing and then excuse me sorry i ate a huge meal yeah and then um i'll let y'all uh we, excuse we, me i'll let him get to work on that episode later this week uh, yeah i was gonna say we're gonna be covering standard and historic because that is going to be the the format for the I don't know what it's the called. Zendikar the Rising what, Championship. The Zendikar Rising Championships. We get, but it's like the, the whatever the rivals MTG uh, people are playing this weekend. So no, it, this is the one that people have qualified for. This is like the Pro Tour. Oh, this is the one that's like the Pro Tour. So, yeah. Again, this is another problem that we have with the system. I don't know what is what. Anymore. No, the, the, this one's really cool. Okay. I'm, I'm excited. I will be watching it. I know that. Yep. You know, I've, I've got a couple a couple of friends participating in it some people that i'm really big fans of and there seem to be some cool decks set up too so i'm excited yeah no it's, it's gonna be great we're gonna preview it talk about some other stuff so we will have two episodes this week um you know this one and that one so um, if we don't i'm blaming ross again yep it's almost right. always me it's almost always you <laughs> all right love you buddy and everybody at home thanks for listening and we'll see y'all next time I believe that this actually vindicates me and you're a big dum-dum.